Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. The rotator cuff is a group of four muscles responsible for keeping your shoulder joint stable. Whether you know how your rotator cuff works might have to do with whether you've ever injured your rotator cuff. Rotator cuff injuries are common, not just among athletes, and the severity of the injury dictates whether surgery is required. Regardless, physical therapy should always be part of the treatment plan, either as an alternative to surgery or as part of the post-surgery rehabilitation process. To learn more about this issue, we talked with Dr. Richard Hawkins, a renowned orthopedic surgeon specializing in the shoulder and chairman of the Hawkins Foundation, and physical therapist Chuck Thigpen, a clinical research scientist and the author of multiple peer-reviewed articles on the treatment of shoulder pain. As always, input from our guests is for informational purposes only and shouldn't be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. You can learn more about rotator cuff injuries and how physical therapists can help at MoveForwardPT.com. With that, here's our interview. Chuck, just to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about how the rotator cuff works? The rotator cuff is a combination of four muscles that are primarily responsible for providing stability to the shoulder joint, so that's the arm bone into the shoulder blade, and it really pulls those together and then allows us to lift our arm overhead and to do extended uh, manipulation of the arm in space. And so when you see injuries, what's the range of injuries that can happen to the rotator cuff? Well, you can see everything from a typical strain where the muscle just gets irritated. Maybe you go out over the weekend and trim some bushes or play a sport or really more active than normal, get what we know as tendonitis or inflammation in the tendon that resolves over a few days. Or you can get something on the other end of the spectrum, which is a full thickness cuff tear where the cuff is completely torn and then becomes potentially a surgical issue. In between those two, you see a thickening of the tendon, a degenerative process. It's commonly associated with overhead activities, potentially athletics, and laborers, maybe carpenters, what I would consider hard work for a living. You mentioned athletics, like some baseball players can get rotator cuff injuries. What are the physical actions that tend to lead to that injury? Generally, we associate rotator cuff injuries with overhead activities, especially repetitive use, more than high loads uh, that we might associate with lower extremity injuries. So anything that you do over and over and over again. And so the types of injuries then are kind of based on the mechanics of whatever you're doing. So overhead athletes get a tear on the back of their rotator cuff typically, and it's really a wearing through of the tendon from the inside out. The general layperson who's not an overhead athlete usually gets a different type of tear that's more towards the front of the shoulder, and it's really unclear if it starts on the top or the bottom, and it's much debate within the community of if it's the shoulder blade kind of knocking down on top of it and, and irritating it and causing it to tear, or if it comes from inside out. But essentially, the lay public, non-overhead athletes, tend to get injuries in the front of the shoulder, and the overhead athletes tend to have injuries in the back of the shoulder to the rotator cuff. If it's a complete tear, I assume that that would be extremely painful. I would know it. If I have a minor rotator cuff injury, 
what's the pain level likely to be? I mean, might I just think that I have a stiff shoulder? What would that generally feel like? Well, it's a very interesting question. Interesting enough, the rotator cuff itself likely doesn't have a lot of innervation. And so the rotator cuff itself probably isn't the cause of the pain. It's likely other structures. There's a structure called the bursa, which provides some lubrication between the rotator cuff and the surrounding bones and muscles. The biceps tendon integrates into the rotator cuff and attaches deep within the shoulder. Those two are really highly innervated structures. And the best we understand, it's likely that much of the pain related to rotator cuff tearing comes from those structures. And it's actually the mechanical insufficiency or the inability of the rotator cuff to help control the humeral head or the arm bone connecting into the shoulder blade that actually causes the pain. Dr. Hawkins, I wonder if you can tell me then, rotator cuff injuries, how severe do they have to be to require surgery typically? One of the interesting things, Jason, is that you know most rotator cuffs in our country never come to surgery. In fact, they never even come to our attention. There's millions of people walking around in the United States with rotator cuff tears. So there's a lot we have to learn about all this. So what we get to see, Chuck and I, is we get to see the patients that seem to have problems and they come to our attention and we treat them. The great majority of those patients with rotator cuff tears, the end stages, never get to our attention. So well, I think it's important to divide cuff injuries into those that are at the extreme end of the spectrum, such as a full thickness rotator cuff tear where the tendon is actually pulled away from the bone and there's a, a defect that's present. So that's the extreme endpoint for rotator cuff damage. The other earlier things we see is when there's simply irritation in the rotator cuff where the cuff gets crowded under the roof of the shoulder. Some people might refer to that as impingement, but there's a lot of pain that can occur with that without having a full thickness tear. So we see those two ends of the spectrum, and then we look at that and determine what we're going to do in terms of Number one, diagnosing the problem, being sure we're accurate with our diagnosis. And secondly, what might be the treatment that we would implement in each of those conditions? If it is a surgery, what does that usually involve? And is it directly to the rotator cuff or based on what you just said and what Chuck was saying earlier, is it often more than just the rotator cuff? Is it often looking at other areas of the shoulder at the same time? Yes, Jason, I think you're right that we do look at different areas in the shoulder. If we take, again the end of the spectrum, that's a full thickness rotator cuff tear, usually under those circumstances, depending on a lot of factors, we do a repair or reconstruction of the rotator cuff by putting it back to the footprint from where it pulled away. So we put anchors in and suture it back to the bone where it came from. Now, in addition to that, we usually look at other structures, such as the biceps tendon, which is commonly a pain generator. So we might want to get the biceps tendon out of the joint because it often contributes to pain. If we leave it there, patients might do well with the rotator cuff repair, but they say, Doc, my shoulder still hurts because my biceps tendon is irritated. And then there are other structures we look at as well. So in general, at the end of the spectrum, it's repairing that rotator cuff, which is a pretty big deal, actually, because it puts patients in a sling for a while, which Chuck knows much more about than I do. At the earlier stages, if it's simply that the tendon is crowded, under the roof of the shoulder and the biceps tendon might be irritated, then we might sort of shave down bone spurs to make more room for the rotator cuff. We might do a bicep surgery where we release the biceps tendon. And under those circumstances, it's really a pretty quick recovery that doesn't require any immobilization because nothing really has to heal other than, you know, the acuteness of the surgery. So that surgery is a much easier road 
along the way that isn't so painful with a quicker recovery. Are there any specific kinds of injuries to the rotator cuff that tend to be more likely to require surgery, whether it's the front of the back or, say, the patient's age have to do with whether they might be more likely to need surgery or not? Anything like that that might make someone more predisposed to need the surgery versus something else, or is it just the injury itself and the patient doesn't really matter? You ask questions that should be easily answered, but in fact, in our knowledge of rotator cuff problems, we don't have much evidence to tell us exactly what we should do and whom. However, usually what we see is a patient who has rotator cuff tendinosis or there's not a full thickness tear, so we treat them with injections, physiotherapy, anti-inflammatory medication, Mother Nature, Father Time, the Good Lord, and we hope that they get better, and most do. When they don't get better, then that's when we change direction and say, well, maybe now is the time to consider a surgery because we can't seem to control their symptoms, which are rather significant, with those non-operative means. At the other end of the spectrum, if they have a full thickness tear, again, we might treat it non-operatively for a period of time with the same modalities and say, let's see how it does over the next months or year or two. Or we might intervene earlier rather than later because we know that rotator cuff tears usually get bigger with time. And if they get bigger, they may be more symptomatic. It's a bit of a roll of the dice. There are many patients who have big tears who are not symptomatic and actually do pretty well. So a lot of these things are unknown. The other comment I'd make is that we might see a younger patient, age 45, that falls and dislocates their shoulder, and all of a sudden they have a big rotator cuff tear. So under those circumstances, we might say, well, we better fix this earlier rather than later because that probably gives the patient a better chance to have a good shoulder. You mentioned that sometimes the surgery, if you do have to operate, has a longer recovery time. That the norm? Is that rare? How debilitating is the surgery in general, or does it just run the gamut? You know, years ago, when we had a full thickness rotator cuff tear and we elected to do surgery, we'd make a big incision over the shoulder and we'd open up the muscles and then we'd go down and cut the bone with an osteotome and repair the cuff. That was a pretty big deal. Now, however, most shoulder surgeons would do that surgery arthroscopically through little puncture holes operating off the camera, and it actually is much less painful, and we think we can do a pretty good job repairing the rotator cuff. So the difference between those two situations is not the healing, because regardless, the healing still takes six weeks, three months for that to heal, more likely closer to three months. So because we repair the rotator cuff, the difficulty in that is we have to protect the rotator cuff until it heals so that it doesn't fall apart, which rotator cuffs seem to want to do. So that's the one that's a little more debilitating. It's a longer rehab program, and that's when we hand them over to Chuck to sort of uh, figure out how we're going to get them so that the cuff will heal and the shoulder hopefully will return to not normal but near normal. So, Chuck, take us from that step. If, if you're seeing someone who has had an operation on their shoulder to repair their rotator cuff, what usually is there, either range of motion or pain level or strength, and, and where are you trying to get them, and how do you do that? Well, our simple goal is to return that patient to the optimal level, so whatever the best that patient can do based on their overall health status and their age and a lot of those things. But typically, patients are able to regain over 6 to 12 months, essentially full uh, range of motion, good strength, and be able to go back to most activities of life, such as golfing, tennis, maybe things we'd consider a little more difficult, able to lift overhead. Maybe if they do a manual job, they're able to go back to that that requires lifting. 
Typically, we start out in the early phases, have what we call a quiet phase. Dr. Hawkins alluded to being in a sling. We find that that helps patients be pain-free, allows the shoulder to rest and get the initial healing and scar formation to take. So the sutures and anchors that have been put in to hold the cuff down are able to kind of bond together. And then somewhere between four and eight weeks, depending on the size of the tear and some of the other pathology and and potential uh, surgical procedures, as Dr. Hawkins described, we'll begin to move the patient. We'll gradually take them out of the sling, gradually begin to move them through full motion with assistance first. So we call that passive motion where they're, they're not really using the rotator cuff and then gradually take them back where they're retraining the rotator cuff first with their motions down kind of below shoulder level and gradually working back overhead. And I think typically what we find is this takes somewhere between 12 and 16 weeks for most patients to kind of get back to a near normal shoulder. And then that last piece, depending on how active they are, if it's really heavy manual labor, maybe somebody that works in machining or where they have to handle heavy tool and die equipment, uh, that would require a longer period of time, as opposed to maybe um, someone that doesn't have those rigorous demands on the shoulder. might be, you know, relatively normal for them at four to five months. In that recovery process, typically, how quickly might somebody be doing something with resistance or weights or something like that? How much of it is really just establishing the range of motion back without adding any resistance? This is a heavily debated topic, but in our opinion, we like to hold that till at least eight weeks and probably to 12 weeks before we do any heavy resistance. It's really important for this repair to take hold. There is some risk of re-injury. Some percentage of the rotator cuff repairs don't heal. It varies widely if you look at the literature. And so similar to some of the other questions, we don't have a perfect answer. And so we tend to try and be more conservative, really give that rotator cuff a good chance to take root, and then for the sutures and and things that help put it in place to kind of support that. And really that's somewhere beyond 12 weeks. Some of the research Dr. Hawkins has done indicates that the rotator cuff at 12 weeks only has about 25% of its strength compared to a normal tendon. So we think that we need to at least get in that range before we start doing weights or heavy bands or any what, as you aptly named it, resistance exercise. And then when you do get to the resistance phase, what can those exercises consist of? You know, some of the easy ones are things we talk about uh, down at the side. So internal, external rotation, so pulling the hand towards the belly and taking the hand away with the elbow bent. Doing what we call low punches where you're kind of pushing out with the shoulder blade and arm kind of down at shoulder level and then eventually up at chest level. And then just some really easy rows, so pulling your elbows back and squeezing your shoulder blades back together and then pushing the arms back, kind of like you're pushing water back behind you. Those are some real easy ones. Uh, Definitely making sure that we have full, relatively pain-free motion first and then gradually adding resistance and things to those exercises. Dr. Hawkins, what's the general success ratio for rotator cuff surgery, and how vital is the physical therapy portion to that recovery? Well, again, if we keep in mind that we're dealing with a couple ends of the spectrum, one of which we don't have a full thickness tear, tendinosis or partial tearing, and then one of which is a full thickness tear, and they they carry different outlooks and, and healing times 
and rehab uh, aspects, but if we take the patient who has tendinosis in their shoulder and they fail conservative management and they're, say, age 45 of labor, and we go in and we shave down bones first to make more room for the rotator cuff, we may or may not do something with the biceps tendon because it often generates pain. Uh, the chance in the ideal circumstance of that patient getting good pain relief is very high, perhaps approaching 90%, which is pretty good for what we do in, in surgery, including shoulder surgery. At the other end of the spectrum with full thickness rotator cuff tears, then there are a whole lot of variables that come into play to predict its success. For example, if it's a small tear, one centimeter, two centimeters, and younger patient age 45, 50, 55, then the chance of that healing and that patient doing well is again approaching 90%. If it's a big rotator cuff tear, like five centimeters, two and a half inches in size in terms of diameter, and it's an older patient, then unfortunately the success in that patient drops off rather precipitously. So they might have a 50 to 60% chance that that rotator cuff will heal uh, because of its size and the degenerative nature of the tissue and the age of the patient. So there's a lot of factors that go into uh, the degree of success that they might obtain. Tied to that, is it an injury that's susceptible to re-injury if you don't do the proper rehabilitation afterward? Well, in, in truth, I think that the aspect of rotator cuff success and healing is more related to mother nature and the state of the tissue. So, for example, when a rotator cuff tears, it's usually a, a wear and tear process over the years. It's hard to make a perfect cuff out of degenerative tissue. So, unfortunately, that's the one that uh, has a chance of re-tearing. And if it's a bigger tear, it's one that has a chance of coming apart and so we caution patients about that, lower success and the fact that re-injury can easily occur to have that cuff re-tear. So we're very careful in the post-operative period, as Chuck alluded, by protecting that uh, for a fair period of time to hope that we can get it to heal. And that's part of why we're looking at newer advances to encourage cuffs to heal, which we'll talk probably a little bit, things like stem cells, and you've heard of PRP or plasma-rich platelets, uh, but stem cells is sort of an exciting area, or certain scaffoldings or tissues that augment the rotator cuff to help it heal. So we're looking at lots of aspects to try to improve our chance of healing. Chuck, obviously not all rotator cuff injuries do require surgery. So if you're seeing a patient who has some sort of shoulder pain, what's the assessment process like first just to determine the severity of the injury? Well, depending on how they come to my door, whether they come through an orthopedic surgeon or if they come directly to me, is to assess how long the condition's been going on, what's the severity of the disability. Very simply, can you raise your arm overhead? Uh, do you have full motion, and how weak are you? Is what we generally try to assess. And then separate out a little bit of the pain, because while pain is tremendously debilitating to patients, it's probably not very predictive about how that patient's actually going to do in terms of uh, when they're sitting right in front of you. Oftentimes, things like night pain, their inability to sleep, can be associated with maybe needing some further care. There is some interesting literature and studies evolving that suggest that not all rotator cuff tears require surgery, and I think Dr. Hawkins alluded to it. We're very careful here in, in our world to try and carefully assess patients and how they're doing uh, typically, in four to six weeks, the majority of their pain with activity should go away. 
and they should essentially have full strength and range of motion with no limitation. If they still have those limitations, one has to wonder the mechanical impact of that, and it's really important to consult with an orthopedic surgeon, uh, probably to have some imaging, such as an ultrasound or an MRI, to really understand what the pathology going on with the cuff is to help make the best prognostic decision for the patient. If the patient's somebody who has what looks like it might be a minor injury and and you're in that early period where you're just essentially trying to see if it can rehabilitate without surgery, is that treatment process similar to a post-operative treatment or are they different exercises and interventions for the patient? You know, the exercises and interventions are very similar to what we discussed for post-operative care. It, as opposed to post-operative care, where maybe we uh, pay attention to time since surgery a little more because we're waiting on the healing, it's more on the patient's signs and symptoms and their ability to complete activities. And so we call that a criterion-based approach. And so we'll move them along through the rehab process based on their ability to meet certain markers in terms of their having essentially full range of motion side to side. Once they do that, then we'll add exercises that are quote-unquote strengthening exercises. Once they're able to do those pain-free for a few weeks, then we can begin to add resistance. And so the rehabilitation between postoperative and non-operative care for these injuries is very similar and, and really follows the same process. To take a step back even more, to think about somebody who doesn't even have pain yet, but let's say they're listening to this and they think, well, I am in construction and I do use my arms in repeated ways and I think maybe I am at risk for rotator cuff injury. Are rotator cuff injuries preventable? Well, the industries where we know that patients are higher risk for injuries are just what you mentioned. Laborers, carpentry comes to mind because of the amount of overhead work. And there is some literature that suggests at least in preventing shoulder pain, which one would assume is the first step to developing a rotator cuff injury, although we don't know that, but that's sort of the thought. We know we can prevent shoulder pain with some basic stretches and exercises, essentially maintaining a good posture with the shoulder blades back. And then doing some of the exercises I described in early care with simple bands and maintaining flexibility of the shoulder seem to allow us in our most at-risk individuals, so people who are laborers and also overhead athletes, to stay away from those injuries, although we don't know for sure if those programs are effective. You mentioned a few of them along the way, but I just want to touch on them again. Other than if I don't have full range of motion or I have the kind of pain that's sort of keeping me up awake at night, is, is there any other activity that might be an early indication to somebody that they might have a, some sort of shoulder injury? The two most common things that I think I really recommend people seek care for in advanced consultation, either with a physical therapist or with an orthopedic surgeon, is if I reach in uh, straight out, like reach to put a milk jug in the in the top shelf, or I can't reach up into my overhead shelf, in particular because of weakness. I think there has to be a concern there about what's actually going on with the rotator cuff. And the other would be the night pain. I think uh, patients who are having trouble resting and they're not actually using their shoulder and it still hurts raises a little bit of a concern about what's going on in that joint and their ability to get well without some significant intervention. Dr. Hawkins, you alluded to some of these things already, but how has the entire continuum of care changed over the years related to rotator cuff injuries, either in the process and the outcomes, and where do you predict it going? So, you know, historically, years ago, we'd do a big incision and take down muscle and repair the cuff, and that was really a big insult to the shoulder. And those patients did reasonably well with a lot of trauma and a long rehabilitation and a lot of pain. 
Then slowly we evolved to doing things arthroscopically, where we poke holes in and then pull the cuff back and, and suture it down to bone through small incisions working with a camera and small instruments. And we were very successful with that and have been, but we still, unfortunately, with full thickness rotator cuff surgery, where we're trying to do a repair, if we make sure we define that carefully, we still have an incidence of failure. So now what's happening, we say, well, what can we do to improve the healing of the rotator cuff? So we've tried a lot of different things. We did a study on looking at ultrasound. It improved the healing of the rotator cuff. We did a study on putting a patch on the rotator cuff. We put that on, and that improved healing. But those things have really not caught on. And then this PRP that uh, your folks may have heard of, plasma-rich platelets. So that's where we spin down the blood and we take out these substances which encourage healing. So there's a little higher concentration of those when we spit down the blood, and then we put that back into the rotator cuff. Or when we do the cuff surgery, we sort of pick in the bone to get cells to come in there, which are stem cells, which can encourage healing. And th this PRP has actually not worked out as well as we wanted it to. So now what's happening, I think, we're looking towards stem cells. And there's lots of controversy, of, of course, about uh, fetal stem cells, which we don't use. But there are other places we can get stem cells. We can get them from fat. We can get them if we take a puncture into the iliac crest or into the uh, hip bone, crest bone, and take off some of that blood. And we can, again, spin that down and get what are called stem cells. And these stem cells have the potential to turn into tendon or cartilage. In the case of rotator cuff, it would be to turn and stimulate it to become tendon. So we're starting right now a, a big rat experiment in a couple of weeks where we're taking stem cells and we're creating a defect in the rotator cuff or in the Achilles tendon actually of a rat, and then we're going to see if we can get them to heal better with stem cells than without. If we can achieve that goal, then that might be a big advance as we move forward in treating rotator cuff. So this is sort of biological surgery that we're entertaining. Although I will say the FDA, our Food and Drug Administration, is very restrictive about what we can do to stem cells and put them back into people. So we have some battles to fight on that front. If there's one thing you could know about rotator cuff injuries, either how they happen or better ways to treat them, what would it be? Well, I think we're stuck with rotator cuffs occurring through a wear and tear process over years. So that's unfortunately mother nature and father time, and that's just what happens. So when someone's age 30, they don't have a rotator cuff tear. When they're age 70, and we look at autopsy studies, for example, we would find out that maybe 25% of those people would have a full thickness rotator cuff tear. So that process is something we're having trouble intervening or preventing, so it's going to occur so I think our advances are on the other side, and that's the treatment side, trying to figure out ways we can suture them better, secure them better, rehabilitate them more, more effectively, and more important than anything, get some substances in there, like stem cells, I think that's going to be the future, to encourage them to heal. So that's really where we can perhaps make a difference. Chuck, how have you seen treatment of these injuries and the outcomes change over the years? You know, when I first started some 15 years ago, it was in that time that Dr. Hawkins alluded to with the big incisions, and it was just a really big surgery. And I think as we've moved along and made great advances in the surgical side, quite frankly, our rehab hasn't changed a lot. And I think we're beginning to understand a little bit better about how to rehab folks, and maybe in particular early on, less is more. So 
what sometimes is referred to as a delayed approach. A gradual approach to regaining range of motion and function is really important in that early period to really balance the optimal healing environment. And I think that's a really exciting change. And then maybe uh, using other things like Dr. Hawkins alluded to, ultrasound and imaging potentially to help us understand how the rotator cuff is actually healing and have a real status update, if you will, on that patient's shoulder without having to stick a needle or to go back in surgically and potentially using that to progress rehab along, I think are some really exciting advances. So in some ways, we're, we've taken a step back and that we're going slower, probably more willing to let folks hang out in a sling for a little bit and gradually progress them along. But then in the other way, really making some exciting advances in uh, how we assess uh, tissue healing and really understanding what the potential for that shoulder is to heal. Understanding that there can be a wide range of severity. In general, if I have a rotator cuff injury or shoulder injury, how positive or optimistic should I be about my outlook? I think relatively excited in that it is something that is fairly common, the most common shoulder disorder that walks into either my office as a physical therapist or into Dr. Hawkins' office as a surgeon, and the overall outcomes are really pretty good. It's probably better than uh, 80% function in almost all patients, and oftentimes, Dr. Hawkins alluded to, in that 90% range that patients do really well. There are other factors that we've discussed that do decrease that likelihood, but um, it is what I would consider a treatable injury and something that can be addressed through a combination of surgery and rehabilitation. Excellent. Dr. Hawkins, Chuck, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. That was our pleasure. Thanks, Jason. That's it for this episode of Move Forward Radio. You can access a physical therapist's guide to rotator cuff injuries and links to other episodes of Move Forward Radio at www.moveforwardpt.com. I'm Jason Bellamy. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guests is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at moveforwardpt.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit moveforwardpt.com radio.